0: I ride in this wind my good As bizarre as I know it sounds, under corporate capitalism and corporate governance, ways must be found to make the general public less productive and less self-aligned. And school is a mechanism. And we go riding Personal sovereignty is an absolute blessing But in a corporate culture, it's a curse Corporate logic demands that young Be rendered radically incomplete To the end of converting them Into human resources and consumption machines As we go there The vampire fears Darwin. The marketplace fears wisdom. Well-schooled populations are usually trained to pay lip service to democracy. At the same time, they're being conditioned to avoid the attitudes and behaviors democracy requires. It's a dilemma without an easy answer because... While our national consciousness honors the idea of a democratic society, our national economy and our government would wither and die under anything less than a command and control reality. Would you teach critical judgment and moral behavior to everybody? Tell me something if you would. How could an economy like ours Grounded in the global sale of war machinery, industrially produced meat, fruit, and vegetables, which has a nutritional value about half of what farm products had in nineteen forty, that relies on financial trickery and the mass sale of magical programs of schooling, not all of them inside school. How could Economy like this endures in a climate of critical intelligence. They take it by stealing and lying and gambling, and
1: I take it my way by shiny black. You're listening to episode 745 of Unwelcome Guests, The Hall of Mirrors. I'm Robin Upton. If you are a regular listener to the show, I'm sure you will have recognized that was John Taylor Gatto. If you are a new listener to the show, you may wish to treat yourself to Gatto's seminal expose of forced schooling in the US, entitled The Underground History of American Education, as read by Lynn Gary and myself. You can download that from unwelcomeguests.net slash audiobooks. Out of the dozens of Gatto speeches that I've listened to over the years, this one is the most politically astute. Now, if you'd like to download the whole thing, I shall link to it from this show's webpage, welcomeguests.net slash 745. I removed nearly half an hour in order to fit it into the time available. I wanted to include the Q&A session at the end, which is not only entertaining... But if your teacher has some invaluable assistance, some guides for how you can go about being a saboteur, use your awareness to deliver your children an education and subvert the brainwashing of the mass compulsion system.
0: This talk is called The Hall of Mirrors. And in the five hours before I came, believe it or not, made 890 changes in the script. I've already told you, I worked on a script for your protection. Never get out of here, because I sort of go on the side. And I started with a quote from a famous historian, of the period of the 30s and the 40s uh, and the 50s. His name was Bernard Balin, and he was one of those historians who teach other historians how to write history. Balin gave a talk before the American Historical Society in Williamsburg, Virginia, in October the 16th, 1959. And he's probably the reason I'm here because I picked up his little book, couldn't be a hundred pages long. And it was teaching historians that no history of American schooling had ever been written or taught, that what existed were house histories that celebrated the official myths. Balin book is full of questions that need to be addressed before we can say we know why we have a school institution. I just have uh, one sentence from the Balin essay. He tells the other historian public education as it was in the late 19th century and is now was a new and unexpected genius whose ultimate character could not have been predicted and whose emergence troubled well-disposed high-minded people. I read that when I guess I was about 42 years old, 72 now, and it started me on a quest which continues to answer all of Baylin's hundreds of questions that the existing literature doesn't answer. And that probably gives rise to the working title of this talk, The Hall of Mirrors, and the subtitle, Everything You Know About School Is Wrong. Part One, Melting Toothbrush Handles. Now I know that you've all heard that schooling used to be much more substantial than it is today. But there are a certain number of you know, well-disposed skeptics who say, really, the past always looks to be in retrospect better than the present. And that's a phenomenon that's universal psychologically. So I happen to have a piece of evidence of how different the past really was, and it's a piece of evidence that comes out of my own boyhood in a coal mining town in western Pennsylvania called Monongahela. I, my mother purchased for me from the newsstands of Monongahela a book called The Amateur Craftsman's Book of Things to Make. Copyright date was 1937, and I probably began to look at the book in 1942. So I was seven years old, and I naturally turned to the section that said projects for 10-year-olds. So I was moving up on 10, I wanted to see what I would be expected to build, a 10, very popular uh, pulp magazine. So I'm going to start with an excerpt from this man. And I've deliberately skipped the project for 10-year-olds called, How to Cut a New Entrance into Your Frame Home, because I thought, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> so I took a simple project for ten-year-olds. That's ten-year-old. That's ten-year-old. Called building a model racing schooner. What could be in that that might alarm? Well, maybe instruction not to waste your money buying glue, since you could take used toothbrush handles, melt them in acetone, and have a very high grade glue for your 10-year-old project of building a model racing skin. So we need some glue, but well, we got that by melting toothbrush handles in acetone. Then after our 10-year-old cuts and planes the hull and the main mass from blocks of wood and cast the keel in molten lead. I may father the mothers in here. There were millions of copies. This thing was sold all over the country. These were tent cast the keel in molten lead. Then you master diction like Stay and Pete Gallier, and you use your 10-year-old sewing skills to sew the foresail, you tackle the main assembly narrative. And I'm only going to trouble you with one paragraph from assembling your model racing schoon. Spring the sides apart and slip the lower ribs in place at their proper stations. Set the ribs in so the bevel begins at the edge of the side, driving a scutcheon pin into each rib from each side, make the inside keel from a quarter inch square wood, fit it inside the inside stem in the notches of the lower rib and spring it over to an inside of the stern as shown. Now there's more but you've heard enough, I think. And remember I spared you how to cut a new entrance into your frame home oh, surprise your dad. <laughs> Don't grant that to dad. <laughs> Alright, part two. An efficient market requires stupid customers. So that was 1937, and such instructions for little people were commonplaces from Benjamin Franklin's day until the end of World War I, when a new standard appeared figuratively almost overnight. The new style, which showed up in big cities first and gradually worked their way through the interior looked like this. Students were confined to chairs in classrooms. They were publicly ranked against one another for mental quality. Uh, They're kept there six hours a day, 185 days a year. B. Each day, students copied notes off blackboards to memorize they filled in worksheets and they listened to lectures. C. Regular pencil paper tests were administered to measure obedience in memorization. Students who fell short were publicly humiliated in a number of officially sanctioned ways. D. All undertakings. Of the caliber of casting ship's keels in molten lead were forbidden. E. Children were sharply enjoined to remain silent. And F. This is in sort of a portmanteau. Many other procedures similar in spirit were imposed which reminded students of their special inferior status. Pedagogy had arrived in America in big time Prussian fashion. The solution of the mystery, why this is done and continues to be done belongs to the realm of philosophy and economics and continues to flow from certain dark corners of human nature. These secrets of human nature were once actively studied in schools in those bygone days before literature and history and economics gave way to language arts, social studies, hygiene, and things like that. Now young people emerge from classrooms into adulthood as innocent of as such things as forest savages. They were push elders for modern marketing. Now kids were taught that they lived to buy stuff and feel good. Now they grew older in school, but they never grew up. Part three, a new world order. By 1910, signs were everywhere that a massive project was underway to change the libertarian nature of America from a place of independent livelihoods and self-reliant people into an administrative utopia, one inspired on the surface, at least, by Edward Bellamy's utopian novel, Looking Backwards, by Prussian Germany's victory over France in 1871, and by Frederick W. Taylor, inventor of time and motion studies to control workers' physical movements down to the last scratching of the nostrils. I experienced this firsthand because my first job was in a factory in Belle Fountain, Ohio, near Cincinnati, and I was under the watchful eye of three separate time and motion study people. One who told me that when I went to the toilet, the allotted three times a day, I took a route that wasted four seconds times five days a week is 20 seconds a week, times 50 weeks a year. I've already now wasted four hours. Every two years I would steal a working day from my an employer. And if I worked a career of 40 years, you can see I would become a major felon. He showed me how to walk to the toilet and Save this those four seconds another person it was a she this time instructed me in an incorrect elbow movement i was using because i was a skinny kid you can't believe that but very skinny i had to lift 125 pound pigs of iron and put them into a boxcar and the only way i could get that thing up because i don't think i weighed more than 125 pounds was to make my elbow go this way. But I was instructed that each pig wasted two seconds. Those were at the time of motion day. They're still with us, but they're much subtler. Taylor was a rock star in his day. If you've ever played tennis with an aluminum tennis racket, that's Taylor's invention to light strain on the muscles. If you ever want a pair of slip-on shoes, that's Taylor's invention. Why would you ever waste time tying it and so on? Philosopher John Dewey wrote that America was being transformed by its most powerful people into a centrally managed village. In this new world order, the public forum would be monopolized by corporations and by large institutions. Individuals and local concerns were now quaint and irrelevant. Dewey thought this was a significant advance in human affairs, and in any case, irreversible. It was time for schools, he said, to adapt to reality. Do we call this conversion underway? Quote, the new individualism, with no trace of irony that I could detect. Part four, get your filthy fingers off my brain. In the new reality, the ordinary American voice was disregarded. It was inefficient to listen to nobody. Common American voices were now collectivized, squeezed into something called public opinion. But public opinion was most often rigged. It was manufactured to suit the situation. It was almost never spontaneous. The colonization of the inner life, The inner life of children, especially, by strangers through forced schooling is inherently so pornographic an undertaking that no nation historically had ever been able to compel people to accept it for very long. Not until the military state of Prussia during the second decade of the 19th century forced universal institutional schooling on its own people. Prussia was modeled deliberately after the ancient warrior state of Sparta. And Prussia cited national emergency in doing it. Privately, however, the real catalyst was not a national emergency but an extremely negative assessment of the capabilities of ordinary people by the nation's foremost philosopher, a man named Johann Fichte, F-I-C-H-T-E. You can Google Mr. Fichte. Fichte wrote a dozen public demands on the King of Prussia to bring about exactly the kind of schooling you're familiar with. It's spread out over six years, I believe. But he wasn't the originator of these demands. He was echoing similar opinions rendered historically by the great liberal philosopher Spinoza in Holland who said that people were so emotionally unstable and diseased, murderously so, that there was no cure for it. So there had to be forced schooling, which filled their heads with nonsense. so They never could think clearly and set them against one another in competition to eliminate the danger. If you want to check on that particular Spinoza, you will not find him In normal academic histories, you want to read a book called Tractatus Religico-Politicus, very slim volume. The tractate, it's usually called by serious students of philosophy, in which Spinoza lays down the system that Fichte finally convinced the king of Prussia to imprison Prussia and Horace Mann, a group of other American notables imported into the United States. So, Prussia was the first person to figure out a kind of engineering to deal with the degenerate common people, which no major Western philosopher in previous history had ever had a good word to say for starting with Plato's Republic and the Laws. Let me jump to Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, where Calvin invents forced schooling to fill people's heads with nonsense so that you could disregard them as serious opponents. But the real villain of the school piece is a man named Charles Darwin. One of the wealthiest men in European history, your school books don't tell you that, a supremely wealthy man who didn't waste his time on people like us. He spoke to princes and dukes and heads of industry. He was on that inner circle around the British throne. Mr. Darwin provided not a political, not a philosophic, not a militaristic or psychological reason to break ordinary people, but he provided a biological reason to do it. You recall that in his famous book, Origin of Species, it carries a subtitle, The Progress of the Favored Races. The Victorians used race slightly different than we did. The Irish were a race, for example. There were about 47 races there. Some were favored and some were disfavored biologically. Notice that that makes the the term education. Meaningless. If there's no possibility of improving the biology, what does education mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means training your habits and your attitudes, conditioning them so you become predictable, manageable, uh, and, and your danger is reduced. The danger to the leadership. So Darwin's Arjuna Species introduced the idea scientifically, but it was his second major book, Descent of Man, which I guarantee will be available in every library in Oregon. I know, I've not been in one library in Oregon or in another. It will be in every library in the United States of any pretension to being a serious place. Dissent of man says emphatically that the human race is not evolved. A small fragment of the human race, maybe 10% is evolved. Everybody else is evolutionary deadly. And here comes the kicker if the good breeding
1: stock cross-breeds with the bad breeding stock. I think he gives the example of a
0: dashing Italian actually winning the heart of some Scandinavian beauty. Evolution will turn around and march backwards into the swirling mists of the dawnless past. Now that's pretty serious stuff. And if you recall that Dharma wasn't sitting on a, a platform like this. He was dropping this wisdom in drawing rooms and in the parties of uh, the powerful. If you were a responsible human being and you thought there was a menace to the human race, a bad biology cross breeding with good biology, would you not I think, wouldn't it be incumbent on you morally to find a way to keep them apart? And since Calvin had already instructed the upper classes of Europe, that there were so many people who were damned at birth by the Lord, about nine out of 10, you couldn't actually tell these people back to your place because they would overwhelm you. You have to have an intricate mechanism where they would put themselves, they would lock themselves into a mental a character a behavioral prison. So what we got out of Darwin's first uh, powerful refuge was a series of elite private boarding schools not days with boarding schools, where you can store the good biological stuff. Now those had existed before in European history, but almost none of them existed. The whole United States had six of these places, not enough to store the good biology away from the bad stuff. So in the two decades after Darwin published Descent of Man, there was an explosion of elite private boarding schools. Almost all of the top ones, like
1: Groton
0: or St. Paul or Hotchkiss, and Exeter and Andover, like the Macy's and Gimbel's of those places. The, the, the top places were subsidized by some industrial fortune, J.P. Morgan. Was the money behind Kent. And we can go on and on, but I think the point makes itself. Now what you're left with though, is how to keep the lid on all this bad biology running around with the American traditions, the libertarian, free thinking, this is a free country, free speech, all that nonsense. How are you going to get rid of it? The parents won't sit still for it, especially the Irish parents. And Darwin had condemned the Irish Reds as the worst of the worst. They were so biologically degraded, in uh, 10 million years, you're the Irish. I couldn't make this up. So how have you and I arrived at this stage in our lives, we never even heard of this. Well, because we're taught, overtly and covertly, why waste your time reading the original documents? You read a secondary document, and it tells you what Darwin said, or doesn't. Anyway, so back to schooling. Darwin's first cousin, a man named Francis Gold, who earlier IQ experts said had the largest intelligence in human history, took upon himself the holy nation of spreading Darwinism, the protection against the disfavored races through schooling. And he came to the United States several times and he anointed leaders here. And there were Galtonian associations all over the country, working behind the scenes to see to it that we put up good prisons everywhere for the ordinary people. I want to tell you a personal story about Galton. I've given about 1,300 presentations in every American... And
1: Gatto recounts that the only times he was personally denounced for his message was when he criticized Goulton. He makes the point this is a kind of a religious faith. Sorry, there was some train noise we pick up where he's talking about Horace Mann.
0: Mann sold compulsion schooling to his wealthy backers as, quote, the best police, close quote they could buy. It was a much different, less romantic message than he was selling to ordinary householders in Massachusetts. And as I told you before we officially started, he once drawn a note to himself while watching a working man's parade in Boston saying, we must find a way to break the bonds of association among the working class. Man's high praise impression schooling, with which he claimed eyewitness experience, played an important part in bringing the compulsion system to Massachusetts. But his claim of firsthand knowledge was a lie. He had no such experience, nor was it man's only law. For schooling turned out from the beginning be a breeding ground for crime and public outrage. Not the best police, as he promised. Small wonder that Daniel Webster himself denounced Horace Mann in the Congressional Record, another curious page of history. Never, never, never taught in government schools. The groundwork our own for schooling was laid during the British takeover of India in the late 18th century. During that period, the secrets of successful school management for the masses were discovered to reside in eight constituents employed by the Hindu aristocracy to manage its common population here are the eight at work, and then I'll give you the pro uh, so that you can verify this for yourself. In place of skills training, rope memory drills. In place of exercises to develop independent judgment, habit and attitude training. Strict limits on student questioning. Strict limits on student-to-student associations, silent testing of material previously assigned for memorization, followed by publicly announced rankings of student test results, and this done regularly. These are the Hindu way to control the Indian underclass. Denial of any student rank to initiate curriculum based on personal interests. Long-term confinement in conditions of near immobility and enforced silence extending over a term of years. And finally, the removal of students from familiar surroundings, routines, and people, placement under the direction of strangers, who discourage attempts to build personal student-teacher relationships. Now, how did this transfer from India into England and Germany and other places? Well, the recipe for doing this was written down by a British military chaplain named Alexander Bell, who published a version of it in London in 1797 as the methodology used by Hindu elites to manage the huge population of India. Bell thought such a discipline might prove useful to Britain's own class-driven social order. Seldom has a single short essay had such lasting influence on world history. In a short time, Bell's words were being read in governing circles all across the world as far away as Japan. Upon reading Mr. Bell, a 20-year-old Quaker, Joseph Lancaster, took Bell's suggestions to heart and began teaching a class of over 1,000 poor children to read all by himself in an alley next to his London home. You see, the Hindu method allowed a single teacher to manage huge numbers of pupils by dividing the total group into student-led subunits, the leaders for the title monitor. And hence, Lancaster's system was referred to as the monitorial method. Except for the spectacularly high student-teacher ratio, it was driven by a perfectly sound principle: children teach children, just like the system at work in America's one-room schools, but the vast scale difference and its mind-deadening formula extended the gulf between students and official teachers. It made mental colonization almost a certainty. The monitorial system created subordinates, psychologically and behaviorally conditioned to remain subordinate. Argumentation was non-existent. The active literacies of persuasive speech and writing were rigorously avoided. Napoleon's idea that every common soldier should be able to think like a field marshal, that was an ideal cherished in America's populist tradition, was antithetical to the purposes of monitorial schooling. The youthful Mr. Lancaster, the Quaker, knew nothing of such ulterior motives. He was driven innocently by a simple desire to do good while winning the fame and fortune. He concentrated on the pure mechanics of reading well by teaching the alphabet system that we today call phonics. But it's ancient. He personalized training as much as circumstances allowed. Because he did those things, rather than concentrate on memory drills and testing, his rapidly spreading system threatened for a time to upset the apple cart of state-sponsored mass training, which always aims at imposing order on society through an elaborate scheme of divide and conquer subordination. Something had to be done before the ordinary people burst out of their containers through mental development and the official state church of Britain did it. In response to Lancaster's duperism, the Anglicans opened a competing chain of Hindu schools whose intention was indoctrination non-education, just like the Hindu originals. Anglican prestige drove Lancaster's rough-edged competition from the field. He fled to America in 1818, where under the patronage of powerful men like DeWitt Clinton, he opened Lancaster schools in virtually every large city east of the Mississippi. But under the stewardship of the entrepreneurs selected to run these schools, who were, after all, allowed to make a buck, the schools were heavily influenced by local elites. An American monitorial schooling regressed back to the original mean very quickly, adopting the Hindu control design. That pleased local families of substance much more than Lancaster's innocent alternative, actually teaching common children to acquire formidable skills. One important byproduct of the Lancaster phenomenon was that it offered practical evidence that mass indoctrination of the young through school schemes could work even in liberty-loving America. And as I told you, the first nation to follow this promising trail to its logical end was the military state of Prussia. By 1820, Prussia had a forced schooling system up and running. Its purpose to convert the young into human resources. That's a translation of a German phrase. You may have heard it recently. We have a Department of Human Resources I believe in Washington. Powers of expression were suppressed through schooling. Information needed to think in context was to and the young were forced daily to compete with one another for status and dignity. This was the very system Horace Mann asked America to imitate. And imitate it we did, though not with the same zeal for another half century. We movers and shakers like Horace Mann and his influential Unitarian backers were able to impose their will on only two states, Massachusetts and New York in the early 1850s. To that short list, however, a fatal third jurisdiction must be added. Our national government center, Washington, DC, the District of Columbia. Washington was the straw that broke the national back of education. It's certain our school institution would look much different than it does today, were it not for Washington offering material incentives behind the scenes to convince individual state decision makers to play ball and accept the Prussian model. It's fairly easy to demonstrate that centralized compulsion schooling was never part of the Democratic-American dream or its Republican counterpart. Not a single word about school. not a single word appears in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration, or in any one of the nation-building debates recorded in the Federalist Papers, which, by the way, used to be read in every junior high school in America until I guess somebody got the idea that it might not be a wise thing to do to have kids say, well, where's the, uh, how do we get schools that are mentioned here? <laughs> Jefferson, however, had heard of a movement to do this in Europe, a movement which drew its inspiration from Benedict Spinoza's Tractatus Religious politicus of 1690. Some of you have had some philosophic training. You may wonder why he didn't say Baruch Spinoza, and it's for the simple reason that not a single time in his life did Spinoza ever sign his name Baruch Spinoza, not once. You might wonder how he became Baruch Spinoza then. It certainly would be a key to understand the whole Hall of Mayors, you and i are involved in so spinoza sought to establish a system of forced schooling in Holland to replace faith-based religion which he despised. but jefferson rejected this idea to bamboozle common men and women calling it quote a mere civil religion precisely the locution Spinoza employed in the tractate. Nor was there any local popular clamor for institutional schooling after our revolution. You don't need to take my word for it. Pick up a copy of a book that will be in every library in Ireland called Democracy in America by the French aristocrats. Alexis the Tocqueville and Tocqueville says emphatically that history has never seen a common people so superbly educated as in America without any formal system of schooling at all, with thousands of schools following every pattern imaginable but there were no systematic school, and most people didn't go to any of the thousand schools. George Washington for two years, Benjamin Franklin for two years, etc. I think Jefferson for no years. Uh, so, as I told you in the prequel, that the Tractatus Spinoza published in 1690, I mean, available in university libraries, you might be able to Google it also. Uh, denounced common people as hopelessly irrational and they had to be put to sleep mentally in order to protect the best people. That's the liberal philosopher Spinoza who I may mean, studied in college now that you've heard a few of the philosophical rationales to justify what happened i want to give you some hard-nosed economic justifications. i'll be very surprised if you've ever heard of these before even though for a long period of time on the upper levels of policy makers in the country they were Prime items to have problems to be solved. Most obvious of these is the easiest to understand. This new institution would offer a rich field of personal opportunity for the ambitious. As the largest hiring agency in America, it could bestow lucrative contracts it was a spectacular economic engine right from the start, a jobs project with no civilian parallel. Its material aspect hidden behind a cloud of treacly rhetoric about educating children. School performed subtler economic services as well by offering breaks from motherhood. <laughs> It allowed means of women to be drawn into the labor pool. Right, right, to, well, from the boss's point of view, that cut the economic value of each labor unit in half. And so Johns Hopkins, in 1988, published a study saying, that the average income of an American working man in 1980 required a working couple in 1988 to duplicate the purchasing power. Just what you would expect if you ever had been taught the ABCs of economics. If you double the size of the labor force, you cut the unit value in half. You can set these people against one another, competing for work. So school
1: performed
0: subtler services as well, and the subtlest of all, I'm gonna tell you about next. Well, first I'll tell you about, he created the industry of teacher training, whose customers had no choice but to buy the service if they wanted access to one of these new jobs but now the greatest solitude. All these things by themselves guarantee the school training would be everlastingly political. Nobody who benefits materially from politicized schooling gets the chalk contract, or the liverwurst contract, or whatever, whether they're from the left or right or the center, would be crazy enough to allow schools to be depoliticized. The tidal flow of money through school corridors in good times and in bad is in the last analysis much more important than philosophy as an ultimate determinant of school affairs. Now, what I've been promising you, the salaries reasons to do this. There are two fatal diseases that infect capitalism on a regular basis. One is called overproduction, and the other is called hyperdemocracy. Let me give you a couple of samples of each. All through the 19th century, there were financial crises. Each one of those crises was caused by the fact that the American dream was to produce your own life and enough in surplus that you could get an income from from that. So no business was safe from being imitated, duplicated, and it would lose its pricing power with stuff. There had to be a way to make the American population less productive. In 1991 an economic crisis spread all over Asia. It was generated by Japanese banks who had a huge amount of surplus money sitting around, and they lended out at favorable interest rates all over Asia, and a crisis of overproduction occurred. The famous microloans of the Grameen Bank and of course they're a wonderful thing in theory and in practice and yet if a village can support one rickshaw driver and there are loans enough to get two ambitious young fellows rickshaws their now the village has three rickshaw drivers there isn't enough business to support them they all go belly out and if housewives are encouraged to open micro-groceries out of their kitchens in a village of 500, you might end up with 50 little grocery stores and they all go bail out. That's the Asian economic crisis of the 1990s. Very, very, very intense. It was caused by Overproduction because the Japanese banks have surplus income to loan. I'm not discouraging micro loans here. Don't think that for a second. I'm saying that these issues are sophisticated, and what you're never given by journalism or schooling are the pieces to move around and say. This is a complex problem. I'll give you an example of hyperdemocracy, which means there are too many people who want to be heard in the marketplace of ideas. In 1964 or five, the young people of the United States couldn't be heard in the legislatures couldn't be heard by journalism. They turned out in the streets and they shut down an extremely prosperous war that we were engaged in because that's the way our diseased economy lurches from decade to decade. We can't live without a war. If you take seriously that a mysterious organization named Al-Qaeda is a menace. The United States doesn't have an army, doesn't have a Navy, doesn't have an Air Force, and its maximum high-tech attacks are based on blowing up your underwear, or your shoes, or a bomb in Times Square that smokes for half an hour before it goes off. If that's what they can do, and that's the justification for bankrupting our country and our own domestic needs, then we're pretty far gone as far as saying, yeah, well, we're in this crisis situation. God knows they can send many people on to blow their underwear So that's hyper-democracy at work. I learned that by reading the uh, the various essays issued by a group called the Trilateral Commission, and in 1975, they published a book, NYU Press, the sponsor, called Crisis of Democracy. Imagine my surprise when the crisis turned out to be: if people actually believe that anyone wants to hear their opinion, there's a crisis of management in the country. Institutional schooling provides a partial remedy for these two diseases. And in order to get rid of overproduction, what it targets is the imagination. The imagination is what allows Dave Albert to see that the provider of X service or Y material has forgotten something. And he supplies it cheaper or better or he's the only one offering it. This whole economic pyramid collapses. So if the imagination can be neutralized, weakened, marginalized by making Art and music, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, making these things luxuries that have to be cut back in time of economic emergency. And there's always one in schools, right? Then what we've done is diminish. If we pay off big for memorizing what you're told to memorize, but we're made uneasy by someone who creates. A new way to see kids over 12 years span confined. confinement, they pick up on, you know, what's being rewarded and what isn't.